uh, the psalm that we sang between the Old Testament reading and the, and the epistle reminded me of my seminary days. When I went to seminary, in the, the practical wisdom was that if you were going to have a crisis of faith, it would occur in your middle year. It's a three-year thing. And as it turned out, I did. And so I was at the point, I'm, I'm a native Californian, and so I went to seminary in Wisconsin. And when the ice was thick and the trees were bare and the snow was deep, I got myself to thinking in my middle year, if I have to go back into that chapel one more time, I am going to scream. But fortunately, I took advice, and the advice was to keep coming back. And I remember one day when I was feeling particularly uh, put off, I went to Evensong. We, had to, we went to church three times a day, with matins and mass, and then Evensong in the evening, every day. And so I walked into Evensong, and we sat down to sing the psalms. And the first psalm we sang was, Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. <laughs> And you know, I thought to myself, if I hadn't have been there, I wouldn't have heard it, right? And it also reminded me of the importance of uh, faithfulness. The great writers on the spiritual life in the Western Christian tradition have always said that the way you deal with dryness is to keep going, you know? There's a type of uh, spiritual dryness called axity, in the Greek it means perturbation of the heart sort of, you know, and it can be also interpreted as apathy in addition to just outright hostility. So it's important to understand that those are natural consequences of an intentional desire to practice the spiritual life and you need to keep focused. I didn't intend to say this in the sermon until this morning, so uh, I just thought I'd mention it. What I do want to preach on is Christ the King and in the Roman Catholic Church, I think in the Lutheran Church these days, uh, this Sunday is Christ the King. Uh, and in the Episcopal Church, it can be Christ the King. In typical Episcopalian fashion, I would guess most of the Episcopal Churches now celebrate Christ the King. But technically, it is for us the last Sunday after Pentecost, the last Sunday of the Christian year, so you can choose not to do it. However, the readings and the collect that I sang, the opening prayer, uh, is a paraphrase from the Roman Missal for the Feast of Christ the King. This feast is not ancient. It was promulgated by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And who was in power in Italy in 1925? Mussolini. And so there may have been a desire on the part of the then Pope to say that 
we speak about the all-embracing authority of Christ to lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. When the feast was originally begun, it was celebrated on the last Sunday of October. So it was the Sunday just before All Saints. And the view was that we're going to think now about the kingship of Christ, about the authoritativeness of Christ for the faithful person, and to see as we move to a consideration of the nature of sanctity on our Christian pilgrimage, we have been assured of the presence of the kingdom of Christ and the peace of Christ. In 1970, uh, Paul VI moved it to the last Sunday of the year. And so its theme is a setup for the coming of Advent, a period of hopefulness where we know and experience the presence of Christ but now in real terms, in spiritual, emotional, and intellectual terms, we are going to be awaiting the coming of Christ into our hearts and to commemorate his birth on Christmas. In this country, kings are a bit of a hard sell. We had a rather uh, uh, difficult time with kings a long time ago now. There are, of course, in this country, many fans, a lot of them in the Episcopal Church, of the English monarchy. So there are a lot of the PBS shows that are watched all about the royal family. Nowadays, it's kind of, you know, expose journalism, isn't it? I saw on PBS just the other day that's what's coming up next week is going to be a... a piece on how Queen Elizabeth, when she became queen, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, had to deal with her mother's resentments. So we're getting into the inside baseball on the royal family here, the Windsors at war with one another, right? Some people find that stuff absolutely irresistible. I have to be honest with you, I used to more than I do now, and I don't know what's happened to me, but something has happened. I'm less interested in that than I used to be. Anyway, kings, and using that terminology, the reason I'd said all that was because it's um, hard for us to think about the kingdom of Christ if we use the old thinking about what that might mean. This has something to do with what is authoritative in our lives, how we understand uh, the kingship of Christ as we live our lives. And maybe one of the things we need to say is, what are some of the virtues of thinking about the reign of Christ? What are, where is it? What are we talking about? As I continue in the sermon, I'm going to say some things to you about what I think are important about the nature of the church's proclamation about what God promises, and then to say some things to you about the gospel, which has to do with uh, Jesus' understanding of the world. 
and what the writer of John's Gospel understands about the world. And what does it mean when Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? And how do we think about what is true? Or should we care? G.K. Chesterton, the great writer, the Father Brown, mysteries and other things in the 20th century said, you know, we all ought to be concerned with knowing the truth or at least seeking the truth. And that ought to be part of maybe the Christian enterprise. And I hope that at least once in a while on your spiritual journey, you may have gotten just a little glimpse of the truth in, in oblique ways or perhaps in ordinary and commonplace ways. And that's one of the things about the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, that may be important in terms of how we appropriate the concept and make it part of our own personal history. A few years ago, there was an Episcopal bishop. I guess he isn't an Episcopal bishop now. He, he was one of the people who was upset about the direction of the Episcopal church, and so he's joined himself up with some other province of the Anglican Communion or done something like that, and he gave a talk Somewhere, I can't remember, wherever it was reported, and he said, Nowadays, the Episcopal Church is all about affirmation. We, on the other hand, you know, people who are right-thinking, we're about transformation. So the question I want to ask, and this has something to do with the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, is if part of the affirmation that the Episcopal Church speaks about so often these days is that we believe that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us, and that that reality, that truth, animates or should animate the way you and I interact with one another in the Christian community and show ourselves in relationship to other people outside it in such a way as to become transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love in big and small things. How in the world does that affirmative view, how can it not be transformative. If you have been changed by virtue of that knowledge, you know, I wouldn't be one of them, I don't think, but I'm going to use it as an example. Some of the early English people in the English Reformation, like Bishop Latimer or Bishop Ridley, when they heard about justification by grace through faith, they felt absolutely set free that wouldn't be my location for that. But I understand 
what they meant because if they believed for the first time in the sovereignty of God and the direct connection, which has always been true, of God's saving power to each of you, wouldn't you feel now like a new person? Wouldn't you try to seek and find ways in relationship to be able to understand that more fully? And to in some way put it in your hands as you live your life? You know, that's a transformative thing. Sometimes we feel more transformed than at other times. But I think the affirmations that we speak of often have great transformative power. The preaching of the church on the saving power of Christ for the last 1,600 years has almost been entirely negative. In the early church, there was a different view about the nature of salvation. And there have been people who have always sought to bring that back to the center. We've always talked about being saved from sin, sickness, and death. Our total depravity, our inability to save ourselves from our personal demons. You know, the committee that lives rent-free in your head. So when we think about that, maybe we should remember the patristic period's view of salvation. You know, church, the church fathers, the first four centuries. They always preached and taught that we are saved to newness of life, the possibility of transformation, living into the affirmations that God presents and lays in front of us on a daily basis living and using the practical wisdom which we understand to be the accumulated response to adversity that we have faced in our life, the challenges and the opportunities, and that the saving power of God is saving us to the possibility of being less unlike God. We are not God, but our true self is God. That's what Father Thomas Keating says. The Eastern Orthodox Church has always been interested in this. It's called theosis, if you want to look it up, or deification. And somehow that's something that we're saved to. Now, why is this important with regard to Christ the King, or maybe more important to what the Savior is going to say in the Gospel for today from John's Gospel. He's in front of Pilate, and Pilate is beginning to question him about whether he's a king. I love it in, in the New Revised Standard Version. Jesus said, Where do you, where'd you get this? Right? Which, you know, who told you that? And so then he goes on to say to Pilate that my kingdom is not from this world. In the NRSV, they translate the Greek, is not from this world. 
in many translations is, is not of this world. I like from this world better. Why? Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, just like we're saved from, has been understood by many people to be somewhere else that we go to, either in our internal, emotional, and spiritual states, or someday when we die, and we're in some cloud cuckoo land where now we will know. And Jesus means by the world society organized on the basis of unbelief. And what I mean when I say that is really not no belief at all. Chesterton again said, you know, when people stop believing in God or even the religion they practice, they don't stop believing. They'll believe anything. And don't we have that these days? I mean, there are more people who believe that we've been visited by aliens than believe they're going to collect their Social Security when they retire. You know? They'll believe anything. I watched... We, have you ever seen that show, Flipping Out? It's on... I can't remember. It's about a guy who flips houses. He buys them, fixes them up, sells them. And he's got this zany crew of people who go with him. It's, it is a masterpiece. It is on the bleeding edge of dysfunction. Right? And so they're getting all upset about whether the house is going to, the ESCO is going to close or whatever it is. And the next thing you know, they got some woman in there with grass being burnt and carried around every room. Because he heard that it might help. Right? Yeah. I'm looking at that. I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, people will believe anything. Where this is really dangerous is that you and I uh, don't believe many of the things that are important in my view, but we do believe in our own autonomy. We do believe in our own brilliance. We do believe in our own ability someday to get it all figured out. We believe that the prosperity that we have is the result of our good efforts only. We have no belief in positive or negative serendipity. We understand that it's all up to us. I told you this about a year and a half ago. I was going over to Sur La Table. It's one of the places I go from time to time. And a woman was crossing the street and she had a t-shirt on and it said, it's all about me. And I bet that's true. That's the world. And that's not what Jesus meant. The people who wrote John's gospel said, you know, listening to Jesus, watching him do his mighty works, seeing that these tools were things we could use, gave us to understand that we weren't going to leave this world to do God's work. We were going to do God's work in this world 
in human history. And that somehow the kingship of Christ has something to do with how you and I function in a godly manner in this world when our organization becomes one of belief in being saved to the possibility of new life, transformation, and affirmation. So Pilate is warm to his subject, and he moves on, and he asks Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't answer him. If you were a biblical scholar and you'd say, well, how do the people who wrote John's gospel understand truth? They would mean the presence of God's revelatory and redemptive work. And that's a fancy way of saying every time you have seen God's presence for even a nanosecond, you have had a glimpse of the truth. I venture many of you have. We used to have a sign in the parish kitchen somebody put up. I don't know who it was. A coincidence is when God works a miracle and chooses to remain anonymous. It's kind of corny, isn't it, in a way? But you know, it just might be true. And so you and I, as we become more spiritually apt, are able to see the truth, most usually when it comes to us in relationship with God, the primary relationship, and with each other, you know? If we understand our mission as Christian people to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ, then we're engaged in that relational truth constantly as we seek to be faithful to that. So this week, do some thinking about the reign of Christ. Do some thinking about the affirmations of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Do some thinking about the transformative power that that might have. Give thanks for God's faithfulness and presence. And know that you don't have to go somewhere else in order to experience the promises of God. I have in my bathroom a New Yorker cartoon on the bulletin board that has a, a cartoon of heaven. I guess it's St. Peter. He's standing at a podium like this, and there's a guy standing down there looking kind of sheepish and small in his body. And Peter's looking through the, this list, and he goes, No, that's not a sin either. Gee, I guess you have just worried yourself to death. <laughs> you don't have to go somewhere else to get that. You don't have to go somewhere else to be saved to the possibility of newness of life. So celebrate that this week and give thanks for the reign of Christ. Amen.